When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read more books like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through the Google form included in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats as well as my new Traveling Galley program. For May, my early read selection is Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. For June, The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman. And for July, The Book of Silver Linings by Nan Fisher. The link to join is in my show notes. Today I am chatting with Lisa Brito about her debut novel, Adrift. Lisa was born and raised in Nova Scotia, Canada. She has a degree in aerospace engineering from Carleton University and a master's in urban planning from the University of British Columbia. She currently works as a sustainability specialist for the city of Vancouver. When Lisa takes breaks from trying to mitigate catastrophic climate change, she likes to write speculative fiction or practice her waltz. She lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Lisa. How are you today? I'm fantastic, thanks. I'm so glad you're here because I just recently read your book, Adrift, and I could not put it down. I think I read it in less than a day, and every time I didn't have it with me or I wasn't reading, I kept thinking, I've got to get back to it to see what's happening. That's amazing. Those are my favorite reviews when people plowed through it super, super fast and couldn't put it down. It's always wonderful to hear. It was so compelling and really so unique. I just loved the couple different premises that you pull together, I just felt like I haven't read anything like it before. And I love when that happens. That's awesome. Yeah, I, it was always a challenge to categorize it, actually. The whole publishing journey has been a bit of a challenge. Is it a mystery? Is it a thriller? Is it sci-fi? Is it all of the above? Climate fiction, which is becoming its own genre now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we dive into all of my questions, would you give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read Adrift yet? Sure. So it starts with a woman who wakes up alone on a sailboat in the kind of remote Pacific Northwest in an area called Haida Gwaii. 
and she wakes up on this boat with no memory of who she is or how she got there. And there's just an ominous note warning her not to look into her past. And she obviously has to look into her past because how could you not? And so it follows her on this journey as she tries to unravel what happened to her. And it's set in the future. So 15 years in the future, set against the backdrop of climate change impacts in this region where I live. And it's, yeah, an exploration of kind of connection and identity and kind of the responsibility that we have to each other in this time of climate crisis. Done in the kind of guise of a page-turning suspense novel. So trying to be entertaining while kind of digging into these meaty issues at the same time. I think that's why it resonated so much with me was because I love these stories that have relevance and importance, and it's clearly something we all need to be focusing on, but you're not writing a lecture, you're writing this thrilling story with all of these details woven into it. Yeah, that's what I what I hoped to achieve was I work in climate policy as my day job, and and it's hard to engage people on the topic because it's 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 dire and depressing, and it's um, it just kind of makes people want to turn away. And I thought in the context of fiction, where you step into a thriller or a suspense novel open to being scared, that's kind of what you're signing on for. And so I thought maybe there's a way to bring the issues to the forefront without it feeling, yeah, like a lecture or being as depressing because it's done in a more entertaining context, but the information is still there. You're still getting an impression of you know this possible future that we're headed towards. I agree with that completely. And I do think it is very dire. It's scary. It's hard as an individual to feel like you yourself can make an impact. And so I think a lot of people just sort of block it out, probably myself included. But I'm a huge fan of this new genre of climate fiction. And I read them whenever I can, because for what we've just said, I think it's a great way to get those details out there in a story, which is the beauty of fiction generally. But also, I feel like it is so fascinating to see how authors treat it. This this whole world building and and it's their perspective or their idea of what's going to happen surrounding a particular issue. And to me, that is just so intriguing. Yeah, it's been really interesting having conversations and seeing kind of early reviews come in and seeing the word you know dystopia used, which I mean, the, the future we face can be very frightening. But I built in from my perspective as a climate policy person, what to me are a lot of really hopeful elements. So I thought I was writing a, you know, a hopeful version of a realistic future. And other people are like, it's a total dystopia. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Well, I think dystopia is strong because I didn't feel that way. I just felt like it's 15 years in the future, which I want to talk about in a minute, why you picked 2038. But I felt like it's the way we're going. But again, it's just interesting to see each author's perspective about what's going to break down, and then what's going to happen to society. And so I just always enjoy that. It is dire and it is sometimes scary, but wrapped in a thriller is a great way to receive that knowledge. So let's talk a little bit more about 2038 and how you chose that year to set the story. Yeah, I wanted it not to be super far in the future. I wanted people to see their world in it still and to see, you know, if we're on the current track we're on, what does that look like if we make good choices from here on out for the most part. <laughs> I will say within Canada, I did, to be fair, right, the States is going downhill. Um, so that might be an interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, kind of different response to Canadian and American audiences. But yeah, I wanted it to be near enough to this world that you could recognize it. It just kind of the dial turned up a bit. And part of that was also if it's close enough to our future, 
my hope is that people will see, you know, an opportunity to avoid some of those impacts by taking action now. Whereas if it's really far off in the future, it doesn't feel as connected to action that we can take in our real lives right now to kind of avoid the worst of it. I think that makes sense. That's an interesting point about Americans viewing the story versus Canadians. That aspect didn't bother me because of where we're situated and the way everything's going to work. What I thought was really interesting was the way you handled all of that in terms of people wanting to come to Canada, Canada having to set restrictions on who's coming. And I felt that while that is so relevant to that time period, it also puts us in today's experience of what we're going through in the US and people coming into our borders. So I felt that was a very present and timely topic, but put into a different time frame and a different issue set. And it made me really think. Yeah, it's interesting from a, like a migration perspective, that because Canada you know, doesn't share borders with any countries that are particularly stressed. We don't have that immediate kind of presence on our borders. Like you have to come by boat or you have to come by airplane really to arrive at Canadian borders. And so looking at migrant flows and refugee crises elsewhere on the world, Canada kind of just gets to be quite isolated from it in a way, which it's a little bit, you know, it's what the book talks about a bit about what's, what's our responsibility as a, you know, country that has benefited from burning a lot of carbon and putting a lot of carbon pollution into the atmosphere. Um, and the impacts of that hit, you know, un- undeveloped countries or less developed countries first and hardest, um, while we enjoy, you know, the economic benefits of industrialization. So what's our responsibility to these other populations as their homes are no longer habitable because of the carbon that we've burned? And even though that those migrants aren't pressing on our borders for Canada, you know, physically present, they are in refugee camps and we have space and the ability to accommodate more if we choose. And so just digging into that question of, you know, why aren't we making these choices? Are we going to have a compassionate response as this ramps up? What are, you know, what are we going to do as a country? Yes, I really enjoyed that storyline because I'm in Texas. So the borders issues are constantly prevalent here and it's a constant conversation. And when we do border all of these really stressed countries who you, you know, you feel for these people and I don't know what the answers are, but it was interesting to then flip it and have the U.S. being the people trying to leave their country coming to Canada and Canada saying no. So I just thought it was very thought provoking. Yeah, I feel like whenever there's uh, an election that goes poorly uh, in the States, which uh, we feel uh, feel it as much as you guys, I think, but there's a lot of cohorts of people who look to Canada and think maybe it's time to relocate to Canada. So just kind of took that that maybe to an extreme and imagined what a future might look like if that was actually something that people were doing. So talking about that issue and the climate change, there's some world building. So did that take you a while? to do that, to think about, okay, what is it going to look like in 2038? What should I include? What should I not include? How is everything going to operate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even kind of how extreme to make, you know, the weather events or the kind of just the background happenings. I did a few different variations where things were, you know, more foreign and, and I pulled it back to be fairly familiar to our world from a tech perspective. Part of that being as we spend more time and energy to address climate related things or you know other crises in our lives just the thought that we're not necessarily going to spend as much time on on technological advancements that that might be deprioritized and so kind of the tech we have now is you know roughly the tech that they have 15 years in the future and part of that was thinking you know 15 years ago the world wasn't that unrecognizable from a tech you know perspective so it seemed reasonable 
that it would look and feel not that far advanced. I get frustrated sometimes. I'm a sci-fi nerd and I get frustrated sometimes when I watch sci-fi movies and it's like 20 years in the future and it's like we're living on Mars and like just crazy technological leaps that um, as somebody who has an engineering background, it's like you can't, there's no way in 20 years. <laughs> it's just not realistic. I think it was pretty grounded and, and tried to be quite realistic with where we might be in 15 years. One thing you did add in, though, was the ghosting. These people who just decide they don't want to be online anymore and scrub everything and go live off the grid. Though, as you mentioned, sometimes that sticks for those people and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that just feels like an impulse we all have maybe some days. Spend a bit too much time on Twitter and you just want to walk away from all the digital things. Yeah, in the sense that, you know, wanting to be more connected, you know, with the real world and be more connected maybe with nature and we talk a lot in climate change about, you know, part of the cause for where we are now is this focus on consumption and this disconnect from, you know, the natural systems that support us. And is there a way to have a, a modern technological society, but still have that connection and kind of caring and stewarding of the world? And so I thought maybe ghosting is kind of people choosing to, to make that choice in a really just clear-cut binary way. We spend a lot of time at national parks, and it's something we've done since my kids were little, imparting how important it is outside and the nature and leave things the way they are, leave no trace, all of that. But we see a lot of people who who don't understand that and don't do that. And I wish there was some way that that type of education could be imparted to people as well as everything else that they learn in school, because it is so important for climate change and for our world and for maintaining some of these things. And it's just a shame that people don't always understand that. Oh, 100%. And I grew up I, I fairly disconnected from nature. And it was kind of later in life that I had friends that introduced me. And in fact, the opening scene of the novel takes place in Haida Gwaii, which was inspired by a week-long kayak camping trip that um, I did up there with some friends, which was spectacular. And just that place really stuck in my head. Uh, I mean, I set a novel there. <laughs> That's how much it stuck in my head as a really special place. But we were kayaking and just kind of pulling up our kayaks on beaches in the the national park there and then camping on the beach. And the me of, you know, growing up would never have contemplated being out in nature in that way. I didn't have any understanding or exposure to it. And I think if you don't, in those early days, it can be hard to find, find that way in and to have that introduction, to have somebody kind of guide you through it and help teach you and help you learn. And then once you're in it, it's staggering. Haida Gwaii is just the forests and walking through the forests and you're walking on this understory, just layers and layers and layers of, you know, fallen trees. And, and you realize you're not standing on, you know, ground, you're standing on just meters of like an ecosystem on its own. And you come back and we would go walking in Stanley Park in Vancouver, which is a beautiful, amazing park, but it felt quite sterile after having been in that really, really rich ecosystem. And you realize how much we've lost once you've seen that. And so I think the more exposure we can give people to those really rich ecosystems that are just teeming with life, it will give them that lens to see what's at risk or what we've lost or what we're fighting for in a way that if you don't have that imagery in your head, you can't really even appreciate it. I think that's right. We go to Rocky Mountain every summer. And so just climbing up into the mountains and you know everywhere you're looking, all you see are more mountains and it's so peaceful and calm. It's just wonderful. And I think it's one of those things that you just can't replicate that, which is what you're saying. 
I'm not a big camper, I will say. I have to go home to a cabin at night and have a bathroom and a shower. But I do love to take long hikes and be out in nature and enjoy the peace. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, a week-long kayak camping trip was extreme for me. I appreciate a good shower. The trip ended at a place called Hot Spring Island. Uh, and so we ended in a hot spring, which was by far the best hot spring experience I've ever had in my life after seven days being in the wild. <laughs> yes, exactly. Without a shower. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So the one thing we haven't talked about yet, which was the thing that I found the most gripping in the story, was your character wakes up on this boat, which you mentioned in your synopsis, with no memory. And she has to find paperwork that tells her who she is, an ID, tells her not to investigate. But how horrifying. I was fascinated by this part of the story, and I've thought so much about it since I finished it. And you talk off and on in the book, like, what is the importance of the, the sense of self and memory? And what are you without those things? So I was just so curious how that factored into your story. Yeah, the opening scene came to me as a kind of a complete thing. So I started with a character with no memory and had, you know, built the story around that. And I was same thing when I thought about you know, the horror of not knowing yourself and how do you continue on and, and what does that mean? And I actually read a lot of books on identity and sense of self and, you know, philosophical theories about it. And, and it's quite interesting about this question about how wrapped up is memory and our memory of our life experiences in our sense of identity. And also the fact that memories actually are quite malleable, like digging into kind of the brain science about how memories are stored and how we recall them. And the thought that every time you retrieve a memory, you're potentially modifying it a bit. And it's they're not pure, unfixable things necessarily. And so that's really interesting. If you think our memory is really tied, to, or sorry, our identity is really tied to our memory, then what does that mean given the malleability of memories? And just how would you function if it was all gone and there's just a gaping hole where that sense of self was? It's horrifying to think about. Yeah. I thought it was terrifying. So yeah, yes, exactly. I, I just kept thinking, oh my gosh. And I don't think this is a spoiler, but that begins to happen to other people. So there are all these people waking up without their memories. She's not alone. And then how those people are handled, again, thinking about people crossing borders and how all of that stuff is happening and how people act from fear sometimes instead of from rationality. So all of that was just truly fascinating. I just felt like I will be thinking about your book for so long and on many different planes. Yeah, I, I'm glad I found it fascinating too. That was my hope that other people would find it equally curious. And I did a lot of also reading about amnesia uh, and the kind of the different types of amnesia that exist. And the one in the book is, you know, it's fictional where she's lost all of her personal memories and all of her autobiographical information completely. So kind of like a Jason Bourne version where it's all gone. Um, and that's very, very, very rare verging on fictional, but also felt like the most interesting, like that complete erasure. And that instant question that I think it builds, which is, is she going to find out? Is she going to have all the answers? And that kind of, I feel like it propels you through the story because you, you need to know as much almost as she needs to know about who she was and will she find out? And why? I mean, that's what I wanted to know the whole time. Why did this happen to her? And obviously I can't say any more about that, but I just was dying to know. And I think the fact that it kind of borders on fictional really made the story because, you know, it wasn't something that I could be hung up like this could happen to me. But it was so interesting to think about those issues as we were talking sense of self, memory. And so I liked that it wasn't one of those things that is happening regularly. Yeah. And the 
kind of additional terrifying thought that if someone could do this to you, right, that's a, a weapon of a scale we don't have and kind of adds in a whole other layer of terror. Exactly. Especially once it's happening to a variety of people, because then you're really wondering what is going on. So you work in sustainability for the city of Vancouver. Can we talk more about that? Yeah, for sure. It's a career I kind of fell into accidentally. So always happy to talk about it. Tell me what you do. So I'm a senior sustainability specialist in the sustainability group uh, at the city of Vancouver. And it used to be kind of a position that was more broadly about the kind of whole encompassment of sustainability. But in the last few years, since declaring a climate emergency, our team is really focused on climate and kind of everything within our kind of city control to cut carbon pollution as much as possible. So looking at where our sources of carbon are, and then what can we as a city do to really cut those? And so I get to work on a, a whole variety of subjects. Most recently, I've been working specifically on climate justice and trying to understand and articulate kind of, you know, how all of the things that are, you know, coming from the climate crisis or the root cause of the climate crisis, you know, it's the same root cause as all the systemic injustices that are happening and, you know, our need to address these things together at the same time and just drawing those connections, which is not something we've done necessarily in the past in our team. And so it's been a real educational journey for us as a team. Is it a stressful job in terms of looking ahead and knowing what's coming? Or do you feel like because you are helping that you're making a difference that it's not so stressful? That's a, you've asked a really big question. It's both. It's, there's a lot of kind of climate anxiety and climate grief, because I think we know and spend all day kind of steeped in the knowledge of what's coming and, you know, the IPCC projections, which there's a pathway to the future if we are really good at aggressively cutting carbon globally. And then there are the pathways where if we continue as we are currently, which are really, really scary, like really scary. But we're also in the lucky positions where we can try and help, like the work we do every day is, you know, helping to try and shift us onto a better course. So I know a lot of people are frustrated because they're equally aware of, you know, the potential for a really dire future, but they don't necessarily have that, you know, direct ability to take action at the same scale that working right in the, you know, center of some of the decision making gives us the chance to make. That's what I was referencing earlier is that I find it very scary, but I don't really find myself in a position to do much about it. And so at least in a position to be doing something you have to feel like, okay, I know what we need to do, and I'm going to work very hard to see that it happens. Yep, definitely. It's that chance to show up every day and, and try to improve things. And then also part of what we do is to reach out to the public and engage them and try to give them a sense of what they can do. And, and it used to be very much about coaching people and individual choices that they can make, which is part of it. But it, it's also about the systems that we all operate in that kind of prevent us from being able to do things, you know, like it's fine to say, take transit more often, don't drive as much for the sake of carbon pollution. But if your city hasn't built a functioning transit system, that's not really possible, right? So it's about how do you change the system so that transit is a you know comfortable, preferable choice that functions for more people? How do you give people options to you know plug into renewable energy versus using fossil fuels? Because people, I think, will make the choices if you make it possible for them. But a lot of the systems in place just make it not possible. So it, it can be quite frustrating for people, I think, who you know are aware and want to do better, or want to do more, but they're stuck in a system that's been built around car culture and fossil fuel burning at every turn, right? Absolutely. 
And also a lot of it, or a fair amount of it, is coming from these large corporations. And we don't really have any way other than writing letters, things like that, to force corporations to stop what they're doing. Yep. It's, it's one of the most powerful things people can do on climate, unfortunately. And it's not sexy, but it is, yeah, getting politically involved and putting pressure on politicians to hold those corporations to account and to get those practices to shift. And it's, I think it's not as satisfying as the easier answer that we used to say, you know, change your light bulb, which was a tangible, tactile thing that you could accomplish. But it is, it's that collective pressure to get the corporations and get governments to change what they're prioritizing and how they do business. And it's it's not sexy and it's, I think, absolutely critical, which is a challenge. It's a challenge to get people to engage in that. Absolutely. Well, how does your job inform your writing? Like, how did you feel like what you have been doing was then incorporated into your story? I think that's where the the hopeful, when I explain or try to describe a drift as having hopeful elements in it, that was part of what I wanted to do was to imagine and get to spend some time, you know, leaving leave my day job and then spend some time in the future where we had done some of the things. So where we had, like, it has a Canada that's gotten off fossil fuels um, for electricity in 15 years. That is incredibly optimistic and hopeful. It's got, you know, communities that have addressed sea level rise and have, you know, either adapted or kind of moved out of the way of the rising seas. And so it's got bits and pieces of us having made really good choices on, you know, a big scale so that we're better prepared. It has a, you know, a national disaster response team, this idea that we're going to have these extreme weather events and it's going to be beyond what a particular community can support. So there's a national kind of group that goes and flies into these troubled spots to help them in the moment of crisis, just kind of a reflection of our need to care for each other collectively and support systems to help people in moments of crisis. So it was it was kind of seeing in the day job what we need to do and then writing a story where we had actually set up some of those systems so I could just experience the joy of <laughs> us having done the right thing. Knowing that we went in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, are you a pantser or a plotter? Did you plot everything out before you sat down to write or did you just sit down and start writing? I want to <laughs> I want to reject the false binary of that choice if I can, because I can't answer it. It's, I, I this is my first novel. Um, and so the process I use in this one was the one that worked for this story. And there's kind of a question about, you know, is that going to be the same process for everyone? I don't know yet. Um, I do, I would say I do exploratory writing is what I call it, where I'm, I've created the characters and I'm playing with the tone and I'm playing with the characters to get to know them and exploring where the story might go. But I don't consider that like that I'm writing the story yet. And then at some point I do sit down and I plot out the key moments um, and I write the climax fairly early on so I know where I'm going. Um, So I feel like it's a hybrid. I play around a little bit uh, and then I do a bit of outlining and then I fill in some gaps. And then at some point I buckle down and I write down a really detailed scene by scene outline to make sure each scene is doing, like carrying its load and doing as much as possible. Um, just to be keep everything as tight as I can. So in the end, I become quite a, I'd say, a tight plotter. But in the beginning, it's more exploratory and, and playful. Well, I think a number of people end up with the hybrid. So it just depends. But some people are so specific in terms of outlining everything or not outlining anything and just sitting down and writing. So it's just fascinating to see everybody's processes. It's incredible how different people approach the process and get to an end result. So I think that's really impressive. I think it is too. 
that everybody gets to the same place in the end, but there's a thousand different paths. Yeah, yeah. And each book might, even with the same author, take a different path. That's interesting. I don't hear that very often. So I was interested to hear you say that. I think some people sometimes will slowly move from one to the other, but it seems like a lot of people, once they have their path, follow it. So it's interesting that you're thinking you may not follow it. Yeah. We'll have to see. Yeah, I'm a bit into the next one. And it's similar in the sense that it's playing, um, but maybe started outlining earlier into it, maybe just because I had a clearer sense of the story from the get-go. So it might just be how, how clearly the idea arrives. Absolutely. That's true. And how much it has to be fleshed out. Mm-hmm. What about your title and cover? I'm a huge cover person. I loved your cover. So tell me about how those came about. Uh, the title has been adrift for a long time. And it was kind of, it was my working title, which was both, you know, she wakes up on a sailboat and she herself is, I mean, very adrift with all of her memories gone. But it also references a bit of the world that's, you know, hasn't picked a firm direction and how we're going to respond to the climate crisis and and the sense, you know, migrant flows and refugees and just it feels like the world's very, you know, lacking in direction on a lot of that. So it felt like it was hitting on both of those angles quite well. We bounced around a few other ideas uh, with my publisher's source books, but in the end, it just adrift seemed to resonate. There are a lot of other books named adrift, so it's a bit of a drawback in that sense. But it just seems so perfect for the story that we stuck with it. And the cover, I had no idea how to portray Again, because it's such a kind of genre mixing book. And so what style of cover, you know, best conveys what it is. So the cover is all my publisher source books and the great designer, Liz Dresner, just trying to, yeah, convey something, I think, kind of moody and tense and tying in, yeah, the ocean, which it's set, you know, all along the coast of British Columbia. So the ocean is just really a key element to the whole thing. Yeah, I'm curious to know what you thought about the cover, because it's I, I think it's hitting fairly strongly in the suspense market vibe. I love the way the letters are done in terms of they're not standard, straightforward letters. They're going every which way, impacted by the water. I thought that was very cool. And I don't know, I guess it falls in the suspense, but it doesn't really have that kind of bright color, gloomy lights that all the, the suspense seem to have these days. So I don't know. For me, I felt like it just sort of fell in the climate fiction because of the water and the way everything is kind of bubbling up. Yeah. And the little, the slight oil sheen across the water mm-hmm. uh, was a nice touch. Yeah, you're right. I, I Kind of climate fiction is a growing category, I hope. It is for sure. Seeing more and more of them. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I was reading um, The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh, who talks about, this was in 2016, and he's kind of calling out the arts culture and for failing to grapple with climate change and failing to reflect that, you know, in their works and talking about, you know, this is a a major defining issue of our time and people are going to look to the arts and wonder where, where it was, why it wasn't being reflected or kind of processed through arts and culture. And so that was something in the back of my head as I was writing this, that, that if you want to, I mean, if you want to write a story set in the future, which I love speculative fiction, so I'm often playing in that space, you have to address it. And so rather than hide it, I just kind of brought it a bit more to the forefront because it just feels necessary. I agree with that completely. And as I mentioned before, I am totally fascinated with it. I love it. I try to grab any book in that genre, but it is at times terrifying. So I have to kind of be ready to gear myself up and be like, okay. But it is really interesting and it is a great way to learn more and to educate people, I think. 
Yeah. And definitely, I hope I struck a balance of being, you know, more on the entertainment end and not too heavy on the climate component. Like it's there, it's integrated into the story, but it is about the character and it's her journey, having lost her memory and trying to figure out what's happened to her and how does she continue on. Absolutely. To me, it is a thriller in terms of things are moving along. I was dying to know what had happened with her memory. I liked the people that she met, the places she was going, but the setting is set in a climate fiction world. So you're right. I could see where there'd be kind of grappling with exactly how you market it. But I think that's becoming more of an issue with all sorts of books because people are really writing across genres more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sense that, you know, a book has to fit on one shelf and one shelf only feels maybe like it's fading a bit and can be a bit more flexible, which is fun. Exactly. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? I read a generation ship story, which I haven't read one of those in oh a really, really long time that I loved. Uh, it was called The World Gives Way. Um, and it was just a totally different kind of generation ship story, you know, leaning a bit more literary, absolutely gripping, loved that. And then kind of at the complete other end of the spectrum, a book called Good Rich People, which the rich people are not good, just to be clear. Just a really fascinating kind of look at the economic divide and the story about rich people who kind of use, kind of view low-income people as playthings for their amusement um, and a bit of a chance for revenge on the on behalf of the lower income people in that process. Just fascinating, really skewers kind of economic class divides in a way that, yeah, I couldn't put that one down either. And that's Eliza Jane Brazier, right? That's right. Okay. I interviewed her for her first book, but I haven't talked to her since, but I've been seeing all sorts of things about her new book. Yeah. The cover, just every time I see it on social media, it draws my eye. It's so good. Well, Lisa, thank you for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really, really enjoyed your book and I enjoyed chatting with you about it. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. 
We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.